Hello everyone and welcome to the Owen Mitchell podcast, here to keep you up to date with legal and financial news that matters to you. My name's Glenn Hayes, I'm a partner in the employment team and head of the employment teams for the North and I'm in the hot seat today to talk about the latest tax and employment changes as new IR35 legislation comes into effect this April. We're also going to discuss the UK Supreme Court's recent ruling on the Uber drivers, which is obviously very topical. To do so, I'm delighted to be joined by Padma Tardy of Erwin Mitchell and Ian Goodwin of Accounting Specialist Mazars. Padma is a senior associate in our employment team and advises on a wide range of contentious and non-contentious issues such as business immigration, employment contracts, disciplinary and grievance hearings and various types of legal agreements and obviously IR35. So welcome Padma. Hi Glenn. And we've also got Ian joining us. Ian's a chartered tax advisor and employment tax partner at Mazars. He advises on a host of areas across reward, employment tax and employment status issues. It's great to have you with us Ian as well. Thanks Glenn. Hi everyone. So I think it's really positive that we've got two guests from different backgrounds, sort of the legal and financial backgrounds, touching upon how employment and tax in some respects are aligned but not in others. So in we're going to dive into today's topic then. So we're going to talk about the Uber decision and IR35. So in the uh, Uber decision, uh, Uber argued that it was a technology platform that it was providing to its drivers, and not a taxi service. And what it argued essentially was that drivers were put in touch with passengers. It operated on the basis that the drivers were self-employed and were free to accept or reject work. And obviously the model of gig working is an extremely tax efficient one for the employer, in inverted commas as it reduces employee NI and PAY deductions and VAT. But the Supreme Court found that they were all workers, and which is obviously a bitter blow to the uh, Uber organisation. IR35 comes into uh, play on the 6th of April. So Padma, wh- why is it important to correctly assess employment status? Thanks, Sam. Well, as you know, in employment, we recognise uh, three different employment statuses, uh, employee, worker and self-employed. And each one of those will have different degree of rights and obligations attached to them, with employees receiving the most protection, such as uh, unfair dismissal, family friendly leave, workers being a hybrid status and enjoying rights such as national minimum wage, paid holiday, etc., but not necessarily entitled to things like uh, redundancy payments. And then you've got the the last category of self-employed workers uh, who have the least Uh, level of protection given the level of autonomy that in reality they should have as self-employed workers and so I think failing to align and recognise the correct employment status means that the risk of claims at a later date if questions are brought in relation to the rights that these individuals hold or if that relationship sours and it turns quite litigious. So there's um, three categories of uh, people there then. Ian is, is that the case in tax too? Unfortunately not, no. There's only two um, types of worker from a tax perspective, which is your self-employed worker and your employed worker. And ultimately there, if they're self-employed, you would pay them off payroll. And if they're employed, you would pay them on payroll, subject to pay as you earn national insurance and potentially the apprenticeship levy too, if you're lucky enough to pay that. So Padma, you opened a newspaper last week um, or read something online. It's all about the Uber decision. So why is there such a keen interest in this judgment? Well, it's always been difficult, really, to correctly determine employment status of, of individuals, particularly those uh, with self-employed contracts uh, or those who work on a, a casual type basis. And the law in this area is really developed through different case law. And the courts, even to date and even with the Uber case, have still not necessarily been able to um, produce a single test that conclusively defines whether someone's self-employed or not. And it's it's distinct in different cases and it's all fact sensitive. So 
this case has obviously helped in terms of not necessarily providing a single test, but at least it gives us a bit further clarity and some more guidance on the types of things people should be looking at. And, and ultimately, the finding in this case was, as you said, that individuals are, are workers. And it's just looking at the difference between written agreements and as well as what happens in practice. So, OK, so the court found that they were all uh, workers then. What, what do you both think are the practical implications of this? Well, I'll come to you, Ian, first. I think the, the case, it, it unfortunately, doesn't bear much relevant relevance from a tax perspective yet because it's an employment law case albeit we share certain factors with uh, employment status for law purposes and that you'd expect them to come up with the same offering but ultimately HMRC would have to take this uh, to to a to a tribunal tax courts to ultimately ensure that they can get a get the get the tax if they think they're an employee from a page you earn a national insurance perspective uh, so it's important in us how potentially we arrive at an employment status decision for tax, given that the factors they looked at are similar to what we would look at from a tax perspective in that we've got control of worker. We're looking at what kind of financial risks people have, how they are controlled and managed and part and parcel of a business. But ultimately, this is an employment law case and doesn't yet have any bearing from an employment tax perspective fully. So Padma then, obviously it is an employment law case. What's the What's your view on the practical implications of this then? Well, I think this is obviously something that other gig arrangements have looked at with some close interest and, and with some worry potentially to think, does this now mean that people that we engage are, are workers? And so uh, practically it is something that a lot of people need to start looking at their practices and look at whether there are employment rights attached to the individuals that they engage. Ultimately, this is going to cost Uber an absolute fortune. Um, and HMRC will be probably now look to enforce national minimum wage for its workforce, which I think when this case was first launched or a case was lodged in 2016, that was estimated to, to involve around 40,000 drivers. And I'm sure, as Ian will tell you, with HMRC looking at national minimum wage, claims can go back up to six years. And the other important practical implication from the decision is that the court ruled that the working time for these individuals was not when they started carrying passengers, but from the point of which they actually log onto the app to pick up the jobs. And so there's an issue from that perspective. And then on top of that, going right back to the beginning of the podcast, looking at other rights that attach to it, such as holiday pay and, and rights that you get as a worker. So there's a potential huge liability there for uh, Uber and other people uh, within that uh, gig economy industry in relation to holiday pay. Um, so uh, ultimately, I'm right in saying, aren't I, that those, those rights wouldn't have accrued if the uh, Uber drivers were regarded as self-employed? Exactly, Glenn. If, if they were genuinely self-employed, then you wouldn't need to worry about things like national minimum wage, the ta working time and, and those things that attach to a worker status. So do you think Uber all, uh, are likely to restructure then, Padman, and change its operating uh, methods? I mean, my view is that it's going to be quite difficult for them to do that to prevent similar findings if they continue to run the business in the way that they are. The court's going to look at the reality of any written agreement between the parties. And, you know, what's your view? Completely agree, Glenn. Um, every time I've been in tribunal to either defend or challenge employment status, the tribunal will look at the written terms because obviously that shows the intention of the parties. But the very big focus is hearing witness evidence of what is and what is being done on a day to day basis. So, uh, Ian, then tax tribunals and HMRC the same or different? Yeah, very much so. You're looking a lot at the what's what happening in practice. I mean, 
I've come across lots of times when contracts haven't been drafted wonderfully well. Uh, and we've had to look at the working practices there. And that's what would establish what the employment status would be from a tax perspective. What is happening on a day to day basis with that individual, given that contract may be a number of years old, let's uh, say, for instance, or the consultancy agree agreement may have changed quite a lot since that person started in that role. Um, so ultimately, you'd look at what, what the facts are, you know, on a day to day basis. But the key thing that both of you seem to be telling me, though, is, you know, even if the contracts are drafted really well, if it doesn't bear what uh, resemble what hap actually happens in practice, then the courts are going to look beyond that and, and are looking beyond that in the Uber decision. That's right, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. Glenn. OK, so uh, Ian, then, IR35 uh, comes in on the 6th of April. So how does it interact with those uh, changes then? Well, I think to start with, it's almost pulling it back in that IR35 is related to individuals engaged through a personal service company. So individuals that are engaged directly by an organisation already, the organisation already has to assess their employment status and may already have a liability if HMRC came to investigate them. Um, so for example, if I was engaged as Ian Goodwin uh, on a self-employed basis by an end client, uh, and the revenue came in and challenged that engagement, the end client would already potentially have a tax and national insurance liability. Where you've got an IR35 issue is um, at the moment, if I was engaged through Ian Goodwin Limited, um, I would have the liability, my, in, my company would do Ian Goodwin Limited in that that's an intermediary providing services to an end client. From April 2021, what's going to happen is that liability is going to pass to the end user um, if they are a medium to large size business um, and they're going to have to assess the status of me as a worker providing my services through Ian Goodwin Limited. So ultimately they've got the responsible to assess the employment status of the services I'm providing and if they think they are um, employed services from a tax perspective they will have to deduct tax and national insurance and the apprenticeship levy will need to be paid too uh, if that's appropriate if I'm deemed to be an, an employee of that organisation and again stress from an, a tax perspective that isn't from just a, a legal perspective there so ultimately it's trying to understand who you've engaged to start with is it an individual or is it a personal service company and that's where IR35 comes in where you've engaged a personal service company. So what will um, businesses need to have in place as a minimum by April 2021 then Ian? Uh, they'll need three things really. They'll need to have a process to identify who they've engaged. Have they engaged a personal service company or an individual? Once they've established if they've engaged a personal service company, they'll need to have in place uh, an assessment process in which they can generate status determination statements to provide to the worker and any others in the supply chain uh, that they need to, to provide that to. And that status determination statement effectively says whether you should be on payroll or continue to receive payments off payroll. And thirdly, you'll need to have a disagreement policy in place um, so that if a worker does disagree with your, your status determination, they can um, go to them and say, I disagree because of X, Y, Z. And that end client can then say, well, we won't take that disagreement any further or we'll redo the status determination statement based on this, this further information that has been provided. So the um, the status determination statement, then, I, I know a lot of employers are using the CES tool, and I've seen that operate in practice, and I've seen people uh, answer the questions under that CES tool uh, in, in a certain way, and it produces different results. Uh, as I understand it, it's received quite a lot of criticism about its reliability. Has it been updated ahead of the IR35 changes? 
it has generally got updated quite regularly, but it's still receiving a lot of criticism and critique from um, from users, from observers, etc. Uh, particularly where it gives an indeterminate answer, uh, which does happen quite often. Um, and ultimately, it, you don't need to use it. It's not mandated for you to use the CES tool generated by HMRC to determine employment status. Uh, they've not provided any mandatory tools for you to do that. You need to use your own uh, approach and reasonable care. And the um, CES tool provides you with an option to uh, generate a status determination statement. But ultimately, it has had its fair share of criticism. It isn't used by HMRC when they go to tax tribunal, <laughs> um, oddly enough. Uh, a lot of the time it's not used in evidence there. And um, it, it doesn't generally linked to what the tax tribunals are saying around mutuality and control. So some of the question deviances are very different to what you'd find, which are deciding the cases from a tax tribunal perspective. So um, the, the criticisms I've sort of heard around assessed uh, in particular are that it tends to generate the result that's HMRC favoured, if you like, so that they uh, generate the most tax for HMRC. Um, but there are, what options are there generally to assess employment status and how do you actually do it? Well, you don't need to use a technology tool. You can you can um, use it by looking at the working practices, the contracts, and providing those lists of the things that are coming out of the tax tribunal. So all the kind of factors that you'd normally see, so control, mutuality, um, equipment, financial risk, substitution, you know, all those types of factors. So you can... Uh, create some sort of policy or checklist yourself to enable that and to generate what's called a status determination statement, which will effectively say the reasons why you think someone's on payroll or off payroll. Uh, there are lots of other tools and software kits out there that people like myself have developed at Mazar, that other advisors have developed too, uh, which will help generate some reasonable care in that it's gone through a robust uh, checking system and ultimately there are advisors out there like myself and others who will review that for organizations as well and make sure they can establish what the tax treatment should be of that worker and whether it should be on payroll or whether it should be off payroll okay so that's really helpful so obviously you can do a tax assessment what about from an employment perspective partner does ir35 mean that you you have or will be changing how you assess status with clients do you do a separate status assessment for employment law purposes I certainly would. Um, I think whilst a lot of the tests are, are very much aligned between employment and tax, there are situations where the tests can actually produce different results. And let's not forget, as I said at the start, we've got three different employment statuses compared to tax who only recognise two. So you could be left in a situation where someone is classed as a worker for one, but not the other. Um, and so I would always recommend that you you still review it from a, an employment perspective as well, not only just to at least look whether once you get into that category of whether they're then an employer or a, uh, employee, sorry, or a worker. Employers will still have to look at whether there's mutuality of obligation, whether there's people that are operating under supervision and control, you know, those types of tests that are well established in employment law for employment law purposes. Exactly. Th through the different case law that's developed over time. And that will then tell you as to what extent your obligations are and what rights those individuals will hold. Okay, and what, what employment law risks do you see if an engagement is viewed as on payroll by HMRC, Padma? Well, I think if someone has gone from pre-April paying tax on a self-employed basis and suddenly are having to pay tax on PAYE, et cetera, 
then it'll certainly lead to the question of, well, does this now mean that I also should have employment rights? And so I think as soon as someone has that tick box of we now need to deduct tax, I do think it's inevitably going to lead to questions of, well, what employment status do I hold? It's fair to say, isn't it, that a lot of the cases that are coming through the employment tribunal, I'm thinking about things like Pimlico plumbers, for example, you know, it does throw up those rights about, you know, holiday pay in particular, uh, discrimination complaints that are applicable to workers, whistleblowing complaints. You know, people might start asking those types of questions. Is that is that your view as well? Completely agree. We, we've certainly, as a practice, started to see a lot more people challenge and question those because they're seeing the benefits of, of the rights and, and seeing the media publications in relation to it. So we're certainly seeing a lot more people question it. So, um, Ian, then... Um, COVID-19 has obviously had a big impact on pretty much everything in our entire working and personal lives. So a lot of our clients were making progress on sort of doing IR35 assessments and it's sort of ground to a resounding halt by virtue of uh, more pressing issues on the um, on the horizon and, and, and on the desk. What about what about you then? I mean, is it an excuse for people to say we haven't done these assessments because of COVID and you know, what about the recent grace period announced by uh, HMRC? I think it, it's not necessarily an excuse. I think I think HMRC, like you say, are going to play play a light light touch for the first year. Uh, talking to a lot of my clients, a lot of them were actually a bit relieved it was coming into play, not being delayed again or postponed. In that they did all the work last year before um, before they delayed it uh, about two weeks before it was going to go live. Uh, so ultimately, uh, I think a lot of organisations are starting to prepare for and have prepared for it and we're helping a lot of them at the moment with um, getting making sure that they have identified the right types of engagement um, that they're able to assess they're able to produce status determination statements and are ready for April uh, and ultimately you know the revenue need to appreciate that we're still in lockdown uh, there's still people on furlough uh, so organizations aren't back uh, to their I suppose best yet and it's going to take sometimes a little bit of time to make sure they're fully compliant. Um, there won't potentially just be that on the 6th of April. It's all going to be all singing, all dancing and working fantastically well. There's probably still going to be some working practice to do uh, once we get post-April 2021. So, Ian, you mentioned uh, needing to do status determination tests. Uh, I'm aware that some of um, some individuals are seeking to pass that liability on to an agency or another third party. Is that allowed? What will happen is um, it depends on how the engagement is structured here, because in a simple supply chain, you may have an end client and then you'll have a personal service company and then you'll have a worker. So ultimately there, if the revenue challenged the status, say you thought that worker was off payroll and the revenue was successful in saying it's not, then it would pass straight to the end client. The reason being is that they, they are performing both the role of the end client and also the deemed employer there. However, if you interject a, another intermediary in between the personal service company and the end client, say an agency, um, then that agency will become is the payer of the personal service company and will be the deemed employer. And they will be responsible for paying any pay as you earn in national insurance if HMRC successfully challenge uh, the employment status of the uh, of the individual. So ultimately, some some organisations are putting that protection in and some are going further than that by thinking, well, actually, We've got all these categories of role and they're all on payroll, really. They should have always been on payroll. And what they are, I suppose, getting people to do is move into an agency arrangement whereby they may just be put by the agency legislation, potentially as individuals rather than through their personal service companies or putting them into compliant umbrella structures. 
um, where effectively pay-as-you-earn and national insurance is being deducted in that manner uh, and ultimately trying to make it as watertight and safe as possible from a tax perspective. And I assume there might also be some employment law aspects there that would ultimately be, be a reason why they would do that too. I think I'm right in saying that the, a lot of the banks have just said, well, we're not even going to do this assessment. We're just going to regard everybody as effectively as employees for HMRC purposes, tax them on PAYE just to avoid the, the hassle of any potential adverse consequences. Is that, is that your experience as well? I think we've seen we saw a lot of that last year where a lot of the, we saw a lot of news around the banks making some sort of blanket assessments, but they still have to make an assessment and the banks are still making status determination statements. They're, they're not with where they're engaging a personal service company or they're engaging a personal service company throughout the chain, albeit the roles will potentially be advertised as in IR35 or outside IR35. So it's ultimately how much of a blanket assessment is that or is it uh, analytical enough to effectively de- generate that critical care is being taken and they've done a reasonable assessment of, of, the, of the individual. Um, but you're right, a lot of people are trying to make it more efficient to ultimately both reduce risk, I suppose, uh, but also make it easier to do for, for people within the organisation so that they know if someone's coming in and say an IT consultant into a bank, that they will be on payroll because they're an IT consultant. These are the working practices. These are the contracts we have to use. Whereas they might have someone who comes in and say a HR consultant to do a very specific project and they will do a status determination statement for that. And they will say that's off payroll, let's say, uh, and and that would be for that that specific role. So ultimately, we're seeing quite a lot of that happening at the moment. And if an individual off payroll worker disagrees with the assessment, what what can they do? Uh, They they can appeal. They can appeal against it. So... um, they can send an appeal in at any time, but they, but they should really send it in before they're being paid because the status determination statement should have been provided to them in advance of the contract being agreed. Um, if they appeal against it, then the, the, end view, the end client who's done the assessment effectively has two options. They can say, well, no, we think it's correct. Or they can say, well, yes, we'll have another look at it. And they have 45 days to a reply to that person who's disagreed. There is elements of this happening already. I had a call with a client yesterday about this, uh, where actually the uh, intermediary was disagreeing. The agency was disagreeing with the um, the end clients or because they thought they should have been on payroll rather than off payroll. So it was a different type of disagreement to what I anticipated, but it is happening already. Interesting. Um... Okay, Padma, you're seeing more HR professionals come to you at the minute, aren't you? That's right. And that exercise, this exercise is being done by HR. It's it's their responsibility at the minute. Yeah, I think I'm getting a a lot of queries from HR professionals saying, well, this is now being put onto us. What do we do? What that has meant is they're sort of saying, well, we don't know enough about that relationship. Are we the right people to do it? And I, I completely agree that companies need to be wary of HR doing that exercise because do they know enough about the, the relationship with practice or should it be passed on to say the contract manager who has more day-to-day contact with the contractor to know whether they should fall inside or outside of IR35 from a practical and day-to-day exercise perspective and also I'm always wary when HR gets involved with self-employed contract status because HR is synonymous to be there to to look at people management the employees and manage that side of things not hold commercial and supplier type arrangements which is really what self-employed contractors should be providing so I would question it's not it's not banned that HR shouldn't be doing them but I would question whether HR is the right group to be doing that exercise for you as an organization. 
So, guys, one of the key themes that seems to come out of these cases really uh, is this important issue of substitution uh, from both an employment and tax point of view, I think. Um, Padma, from an employment point of view, how, how important is the issue of substitution in determining status? It's certainly very important. Um, from the cases that I've directly been involved with, that's one of the big key questions that tribunal asks. They ask whether it's a fettered or unfettered, right? So is there a qualification? And the best type of substitution is when a self-employed individual can just select who it is that they want to put in and when they want to put that substitute in place. But that's not to say that because of confidentiality, security, quality, that you can't have a substitution with a qualified right if it's got to be accepted. But if the individual can provide a substitute, that is going to be uh, key to, to one of the questions that a tribunal asks. So the idea being that if I uh, engage a plumber to come and fix my central heat and I don't stand over it, I don't, it doesn't matter which plumber they send me, okay, as long as they send me a competent plumber, that's, that, that's fine. Exactly. You, you, you control them to the extent of telling them what you want them to do. But beyond that, you leave them to use their skill and, and judgment to, to complete that job for you. And Ian, from a tax point of view, how important is the issue of substitution? Uh, it can be critical. I mean, I mean, like you've got with an employment law perspective, you've got lots of factors that can be determinative on employment status. But if you can provide a substitute, that, that is a really relevant one. Ultimately, it doesn't happen in every situation. Someone might be engaged for their absolute skills and expertise. But if you can provide a substitute, then that will be helpful in, in, in helping you know, provide a self-employed outcome. Also, just to go a little bit further on that, one thing we have been exploring with organisations is whether they need to do a status determination statement in the first place where there's a personal service company. And this brings into the conversation the contracted out services exemption. Exemption is probably a loose term here in that if you can demonstrate that the service has been contracted out, i.e. you've contracted out a service to say a small business, it might be a personal service company because there's one shareholder who owns all the business, but he's got six or seven employees, let's say, and ultimately he's been engaged. Let's, let's take the, the plumbing example a bit further to send the plumber in to fix something. Then ultimately it's probably not him providing that service. There's a, there's a plumbing contract set out that might be a contracted out service then. Uh, and there's some guidance on HMRC's website on this, albeit it is still quite vague, but I can see that being a really important factor um, to investigate in the first place, whether it is a contracted out service. But also if, if, if the revenue think it's not, will substitution apply otherwise and will that be determinative in saying it's an off payroll relationship? So, Ian, are we going to see the decline of contractors as we know it? I think, um, well, Potentially, and I don't say that because of IR35 changes, I think that from discussions with HM Treasury and HMRC that I've had over the last few months, they see it as being a place that this is to make sure that if there's genuine entrepreneurs, it shouldn't change their employment status because the employment status tests haven't changed. It's just where the liability sits. Now, we all know that status is in the eye of the beholder there. So if the end user is um, effectively thinking there's more risk because they're going to be caught with a tax and an A. They may have a different view to someone who was a, who was the owner of the personal service company who was extracting their income via dividends, which ultimately was more beneficial. But the reason why I say that potentially we might find more contractors moving to payroll is because of the budget we've had this week in that we've seen corporation tax raise it rises potentially in the future. Uh, and that's going to have an impact on how people might want to structure themselves too, because ultimately dividends are extracted after you've paid your corporation tax, really. So it's you know after you, after your profits, really, that, that that you've got. So are people going to still want to engage through personal service companies quite the same way 
if actually there's not much of an advantage of doing so uh, and, and where will they then where will this then impact on the kind of self-employed versus employed relationship that organizations will have so hmrc and the government are attacking this in a number of ways to make sure only the genuinely self-employed i suppose are self-employed padma we're seeing indemnities aren't we in, in third party contracts in relation to tax what's what's your sort of current view on on that indemnities are obviously fine and and, and you can use them um i think it's as ian suggested i think my big tip on all of this is making sure that you look at what's happening in practice and make that decision and then look at your contracts to a make sure they're reflecting practice but b also that there's some mechanism as to what happens with that tax deduction if you have to make it because i think there's a lot of contracts out there at the moment where um individuals it, it just doesn't account for tax because it suggests that they're self-employed and therefore the payment is the payment and um, so there needs to be something in the contracts moving forward to then say actually if we need to we can deduct tax so guys one final tip each then so watch padma starting with you your final tip for everybody regarding ir35 i think my tip is actually regardless of ir35 looking at the uber decision as well you should be looking at your, your arrangements and practices with all self-employed contractors. Um, I think that the temptation at the moment is to focus on IR35 and only look at those that are providing services through intermediaries. But actually, I think it's wider than that. You should be looking at all self-employed contractors, given that the noise and everything that we're seeing at the moment is really moving just in one direction, really. And Ian, your, your final tip? I'd echo what Padma says, but going on from that is getting a robust status determination statement process in place that can really demonstrate reasonable care and is going to be really difficult for HMRC to challenge because ultimately you're doing everything compliantly and as accurately as you possibly can do. Brilliant. So thank you, guys. Well, the tip from me will be to, to take advice because it's clearly a complicated uh, issue. Padma, in regards to that advice, what, what sort of advice are you giving at the minute? and what, what methods are available for clients to get that advice? We're doing a full spectrum of, of advice, Glenn. Um, so starting from red flag reports, just to look at practices and, and how that works, and also looking at the legal contracts that the people are entering into. And um, if anyone is interested in that, we, we have an, an IR35 webpage on our website at Owen Mitchell that people can go on to and, and see the full support that we are providing. And Ian, from the Mazars side, presumably you're, you've got an advice mechanism as well. Yeah, one thing we focused on is is uh, probably align our services with the technology we've developed too. So ultimately, we've got a data mining tool that will go into companies' house and tell us whether we've got personal service companies. So effectively, you can look at your supply check suppliers on the list, and it will just pull it out and make sure we can say, well, these are the ones that we need to think about, and ultimately cut those ten thousand rows down to something more manageable. And then from there, we've also got a status determination statement assessment tool, which will generate the status determination statement for you by uh, answering a number of questions. I suppose similar to CES there, but pulling more from the tax tribunal uh, reasons for why people might be on payroll or off payroll. And then obviously we, we, we embody that with all the advice we provide around it for people like office holders who may have a consultancy agreement to, uh, to looking at the controls and governance that needs to be in place to show reasonable care. Uh, and, and a host of other things as well. So thank you to uh, both of you then, and that's it for today. Thanks for listening to the Owen Mitchell podcast. And if you have found it interesting, then join us for our next episode. Stay safe and have a good day. Thanks. Thanks.